Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Christian Hunters of America podcast. We are going to be speaking with our very own Mike Ornoski today. I'm going to be uh, talking to him about all things game processing, specifically the gutless method that most of us do in Western hunting. But he's going to be talking about meat care, uh, different things to use in the backcountry to keep your meat clean. Um, some of the biggest things are being able to process that meat effectively, getting it cooled down um, in a timely manner, and then keeping all the dirt off. Obviously, you're in the non-sterile environment, and you got dirt, debris, leaves, everything all around you, but the big key is to keep it as clean as possible. You can keep some light stuff in a kill kit and still be able to process it, get it out, and get it cooled down. Mike's been hunting for a long time. And uh, he has lots of good tidbits, lots of different gear that he uses, um, some different tips on keeping things cheap so that you don't have to spend a lot of money in order to process that game. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode on game processing. everyone welcome to another episode of the christian hunters of america podcast it's going to be our very own mike ornoski with me today he is the special guest the one and only mikey <laughs> oh boy here we go um here we go mike has been hunting for what 30 plus years yep. in those 30 plus years um his biggest thing is taking home the meat the meat is the trophy more than anything Obviously, he has tons and tons of antlers and big animals on the wall. But when it comes down to it, one, the adventure, but two, the trophy is feeding the family, taking home that meat and uh, filling the freezer. And by doing that, you have to have a successful harvest. But more importantly, once that animal's down, <clears throat> it immediately starts to decompose um it started you know it's dead and it's no longer vital and nature is starting to take its effect on that animal um after you take your grip and grin pictures and you get to have all the fun all the high fives all that kind of stuff you got to start processing that meat and Mikey is going to share all the tidbits on what it takes in order to successfully um, start processing that that animal, whatever it is. We can we can talk about elk. We can talk about any of the big game, uh, hoof stock. You know the cervid animals. They're all the same. Just some are bigger than others. It'll take a little bit longer, but from a coos deer all the way up to an elk, the gutless method applies the same for the most part. So Mike's going to talk about. Uh, different technique um, to get that off as quick as possible. Some of the different uh, knives that he used, the game bags, how to cool it down as quickly as possible and as effectively as possible. So without further ado, everyone knows Mikey, longtime co-host on this podcast and 
we're going to be interviewing him. So how are you, brother? Oh, we are doing good. We are doing good. It's uh, it's a beautiful day outside, and we're thankful that we can have this opportunity to come and share a little bit of insight with what our our true love, you know, the hunting, and then it's the whole package. So absolutely. Uh, it's 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 summer now, or we're ending spring. It's hot. It just made us realize the importance of game processing. Um, even in our September archery bull hunts, it can be very warm and can get into the 80s and sometimes even in the 90s, especially during antelope during August. But run us through your typical setup first. We'll get into the gear on what you would keep in your kill kit in your backpack to keep it as light as possible but also all the gear that you feel is necessary to keep in that backpack for when you have a big animal down great question so i think going back probably i'm gonna say 2008 to 2010 somewhere in there was my gotcha moment that it's time to uh change things up a little bit because like we grew up you know, like most people, we're just happen chance hunters, right? We load our backpack down full of food and water and a bunch of knives and all kinds of stuff. And we shoot something and take a picture, then we gut it. Then it's time to drag that animal out. So for years and years and years, you know, we would, you know, either sling that javeline over the top of our shoulders and get all bloody and nasty. Or then we went to a little rope with like a little pad on it and try to carry it like a purse and mule deer and coos deer. You know, we would just basically just grab by the antlers and two of us would just start dragging and pulling. So basically, and that seems to be the normal for a lot of hunters. You know, we get out there, we get it down and okay, now what do we got to do? So started doing research and hunted with the, with the guy that did the gutless method on a big bull elk we're helping out with years ago. And it just seemed so simplistic and easy. But even though at that time, you know, he just was just cutting meat and just kind of throwing on top of pine needles and things like that. But the meat was still very dirty. And, of course, all the pine needles and everything else that goes in there just it was kind of covered. So so over time, I kind of just morphed and changed, you know, based on, you know, because I don't like getting bloody. I think most people don't like it bloody. You know, sometimes new hunters would like to get, you know, grab blood and put it on their face and try to talk them into drinking the blood, you know, all the old myths and things like that just for a story. But the reality is, is I would say a high percentage of people, do not like to get bloody. And so the last 10 to 12 years, um, when I harvest an animal, I mean, there is zero blood. I mean, it's literally, I'm, I'm doing everything and there is no blood and it's just taking all of the, the great meat, you know, that that animal is going to basically provide. So one of the things I love to do is make jerky and sausages and <clears throat> cut the steaks and make green chili and red chili. So we, we definitely love the meat. So as it relates to the backpack, um, I basically keep like a Havilon knife, um, with, which are very sharp knife blades. You know, I've cut myself a few times. It's like, oh, my gosh, what did I just do? And usually I keep one hard knife, which is normally just a small bone and knife. Um, it's actually kind of funny. I actually got it from Pampered Chef. My wife used to sell Pampered Chef, and it's just a little little small four-inch bony knife. It's just a sharp knife that you can sharpen up the blade, and it's fantastic. And that's really all I keep except for a small multi-tool in case I need to pull out cactus or something. It's got the little pliers on it. That's really the only weight that I have as it relates to, you know, for any type of weight. Then we have, you know, how, how are we going to get all this meat out? So over time, you know, I used to just, you know, try to pe- push it all in my backpack, but that's no fun because then it's, your backpack's getting all dirty. 
Then I went to some different game bags, which those, those are great and are nice. But but ultimately, I ended up with is these little drawstrings. So think about every time you go to a, a convention or you're going out to like a, a giveaway or these different festivals, they give you these little drawstring backpacks. So they're nylon. They got little pull top on them, and they're super light. So I had my aha moment with those was I was like, hey, I got – we got like four or five of these from the this kids' event, and I threw them in there, and next thing you know, I was able to put all of that meat in these little Ziploc bags, So, and each one was like an individual, you know, 10 to 15 pounds, and you just zip them up and systematically put them in your backpack and carry them out. So, so now I'm at the point where I keep probably three to five of those, depending on what I'm hunting. If it's heavily, it's usually two. If it's a deer, I keep three. If it's an elk, I keep five. So they kind of go in there. Then what I do is we have these little ponchos. So you know, think about these little dollar ponchos that you can buy. And they come in a little bitty bag. They're about two inches by three inches. They're super light. And then I usually have two or three of those in the backpack. And what those do is they basically lay right on the ground. And that's as you're taking the meat off, you're basically laying all of the meat on top of this little poncho, which keeps all the dirt, the grind. And at the same time, being in the shade, it's letting air hit that meat to allows it to kind of cool down. So... So from a backpacking, I'm completely prepared to bring out that animal immediately without sequential trips. Unless it's a big elk, then we got to do a couple. But the idea is we're basically getting that animal prepared before we walk out. And just to clarify, when you're saying Ziploc, you're just saying you're like just as a – you're pulling that drawstring, not a real Ziploc bag, right? No, they're like a, a Ziploc draw bag. They're basically like a pull string bag. So think about those little nylon bags that you can get. They're like mini backpacks. Right. That are they're probably a foot by a foot. And then on the top, they have a string draw, and you're basically pulling that string draw that basically seals the top of that bag. Okay. So they're not an actual Ziploc bag. They're not a plastic bag. These are the ones that are like a nylon that you get through a lot of free events and things like that. So a lot of kids' events give those away, and you can actually order them online. And so we basically order those online now. <clears throat> So I'm sure everybody's seen those, what you're, what he's talking about. You see people, you know, at carnivals, at kids' events, like Mike said. Um, if you, depending on what, what you do for work, all the seminars, all the different uh, get-togethers and conferences, they all have hand sanitizer or free pencils, and most of them all have those little backpacks or sporting events. They're really lightweight. The, the straps are the strings that he's talking about that you pull and it closes that top. Um, Mike, I think, touched on a really good point. The field care of when you get that meat down. We talked about it in the intro a little bit of, you know, now you've got the meat off the, off the hindquarter or the front shoulder off or whatever, the back strap. And a lot of people lay it down on a rock. Um, can you wash it? The chances of you getting sick probably after doing that are, are slim, but wouldn't you rather have it laying on a piece of plastic for a really lightweight, whether you use a garbage bag, whether you use the poncho that Mike used as an example, that's a really opens up and you put two or three together. Like he said, they're super lightweight. Um, most of them are clear or, you know, whatever color, but if they're clear, um, you can't see them as well. So I, I would say use a colored one and then you, you can tell um, if there's a rip in it because you'll see the earth or you'll see the dirt coming through. If it's clear, you won't see it as well. But opening those up and laying that meat on those after you started processing it 
for that air to hit it, get it in the shade, like Mike said. Um, those are good tidbits, and that doesn't weigh much. Everybody that's got these giant knives or multiple knives, we get it. Um, you know, the old saying is one is none and two is one. But with the new blades, whether you use a Havilon, an Outdoor Edge, any of the ones that have replaceable blades, you can have that one knife and have multiple blades to keep down on the weight as well. And then, as Mike said, one bony knife or one parry knife to really get detailed work, but you'd still have a standard blade that's not replaceable. You can put a little bit more pressure on those types of blades and knives without fear of it uh, breaking. So now that Mike's discussed kind of what's in his little kill kit, um, let's go through the process of once that animal's down and once you have taken all your pictures, you are ready to dive into it. Let's uh, put it as a scenario. You're, you're here in the desert, but our archery seasons are December and January for the most part, a little bit in August, beginning of September, depending on the year. But most people are hunting in December and uh, January because it's nice and cool out and the rut started. So if you're out by yourself in the high desert, um, mule deer or coos deer hunting, you get that deer down after slipping an arrow into the vitals, go from there. Okay, so let's, so taking a step back, so you got your backpack on. A lot of times I'm, I'm carrying my backpack, and let's say like the arch, I shot a, a nice 4 by 4 uh, in December this year, and the buck goes down. Um, actually, so usually I'll wait. So, so you think about you shoot an animal. If you don't know if it went down, especially archery, spot stock, and it goes over a hill or you're in thick brush, which is seems to be the norm, we're not going to go after that deer very quickly. Normally I'm going to give it an hour. So with most archery shots, we're going to give it time to expire because what we don't want to do is walk up on it, spook it, then it runs off, and then we lose it, things like that. So True. So from an archery perspective, a lot of times, depending on where we think we hit, it could be a one- to four-hour wait, you know, depending if you think you hit it far back in the liver. I mean, it may be a six-hour wait. So so time is definitely of the essence. So, And on this buck, I actually it happened kind of quickly, and I wasn't for sure the hit was so i went very cautious to make sure that the the buck was down because what i don't want to do is push that buck then all of a sudden it jumps up and runs two ridges over that's i've learned that a number of times and that is not a good day so so now we found the buck and so that's now we're at two hours the buck has been dead he's starting rigor morris is happening he's stiffening up you know you struggle to push his head up try to get as many pictures as you can and then then it's time so when years ago, years passed, and then we would, we would gut it, pull all the guts out, all that blood's draining, and try to then grab by an antler and try to go up and down all this rocky and, you know, the, all the different types of deserts and high desert. Then you're trying to drag this animal up and down all these ca- canyons that were already breathing heavy trying to get up and over. So now you're going to carry a 100 to 150-pound animal, you know. So now think about the dragging side. If you were to do that, you know, you're exhausted, you're pulling it, you're doing everything you can. All the dirt grind is going inside the chest cavity. On top of that, you're basically creating bruises throughout that body because you're dragging it with the fur, and everything it's hitting is it's bruising all that outside of that that meat and causing the issues. So, so now what we do is we everything I do it's always a gutless method. So, for instance, we shot uh, two javelina this year, plus that mule deer. Even the javelina size, we did a gutless method. So the first thing we do is it's laying on the one side is we pull out the knives. 
Then we take the, the poncho, and that lays down. I get four rocks, and we kind of put it, you know, two, three feet away. And we start with the back end, and we rip, we pull all, we basically pull all the, the skin from the back hind leg where the feet are, and kind of coming up, and come up the belly, up to the front legs, around the, the hoofs, up to the neck, to as high as you can up in the neck. Then you're, then we're basically folding that that hide basically backwards. So basically... All of the meat is exposed. The two legs are completely exposed. It's just you could just see the meat on everything else. From there, we're going to cut the front leg off and the hind quarter off. Basically, just you're going to pull it straight up and just kind of cut against the body. Then each of the, the legs are going to come off fully with all that meat, and you just lay them right down. So then the next part from there is then we're going to systematically take that whole side of the back strap from the top of the neck meat all the way down to the hind quarter where the kind of the back strap stops where some other meat is and we're going to take that whole back strap off then we're going to pull the rest of all the neck meat off the front then any remaining meat that's on the back side where the tailbone kind of comes there's always a a, a group of meat that's right there and you're going to pull all that off then if depending how the ribs are if the ribs have meat then we're going to systematically slice down each of the ribs and pull all that meat off so that side is 100 percent done can it can i hit pause real quick mm-hmm. Um, what Mike's talking about so that we just slow it down a little bit. When you get that animal and it's laying on its side, wherever you at, get in a comfortable position because you're going to be working on it for a while, right? When you start on the hoof or you're starting at that bottom, can you talk a little bit more in depth on where you, where you start on cutting around what, what portion of its ankle down closer uh, the the equivalent of an elbow, and how much of the bone are you leaving on there on a mule deer, so that you have less in in case we'll we'll do it as if you were taking it out and not deboning it in the field, and then where you're slicing up on those quarters, the front and the rear, um, <clears throat> and how you're circumventing around the guts around the the rear end of the animal to keep it as sterile as possible. Yeah, so, I mean, once you pull the, the front leg and the, the rear leg off, it's basically, it's exposed. It's just a, a, a small membrane that's kind of just, that's left between there and the cavity of the, you know, basically the gut sac and all of that. So, I mean, it's, it's very small. And the only remaining meat is going to be, you know, the back strap, the neck meat, things like that. But... So what I first do is I don't get that detailed. I'm basically pulling the whole front shoulder and the whole hind quarter basically off and laying that down, knowing that once everything's done, then we go back and work on those where we're actually going to cut all the, the bones out. So really the only bones that we have is the front shoulder and the right, and the hind quarter bone. But that's kind of pulled off, and then that's laying on the, the plastics, you know, for, for the next step. So what I'm doing now is I'm trying to get all the meat off that carcass and to get it cooled because we know it's it's been encapsulated in the body cavity. It's super hot. You know, the, it, was, it was living. All that heat, you know, it could have been running. Then you have the fur and the hide. All of that is just creating heat. So what we're trying to do is just get all the meat off of that from there then to get laying out to start getting it cooled because we don't want it to start spoiling. And so then once all of that meat on that one side is done, we're basically flip-flopping it. Then we're going to – now you have – side that we cut out all the meat it's basically it's just the gut cavity and the basically the skeleton and that's now laying against the dirt side and then we're going to pull all of the the hide off that side and pull it to you so now that same all that meat is exposed 
to where you can actually do the same thing. So, so it's the exact same thing in reverse process. So we're going to take the front shoulder off. We're going to take the back shoulder off, take that back strap off, take the neck meat off, any rib meat, and any little remaining scraps So on the back hind quarter. So what's going to happen is you're probably going to have, you know, six to eight pounds, depending how size the animal is, of just all these little scrap meats that you're basically call, taking off from the neck meat to the, the hind quarter, and then any meat that's in between the ribs that you take. And that's basically it's all going to be ground. So let's just say, doing big picture, and we'll come back and dissect it even more. So now you have just a carcass that's laying there. That's You pulled all the meat right up to the neck where you can pop the, the head off. And the rest of it is just basically a skeleton where it just shows the top of the backbone. There's no back straps in there. There's no front shoulders. There's no rear shoulders. And basically between the ribs, you can see inside the, the gut cavity because it's all encapsulated like in that sack. So from there, now we have two or three of our ponchos that are basically with all this meat that's kind of laying on it. So from there, we'll take, we want to leave the meat out because we have it in the shade. So basically the air is cooling it. It's, it's all being exposed. All the meat's not on top of each other, creating the heat. So then we'll start with the front shoulder. So normally the front shoulders, that's all grind, what I like to do. So basically I just pull every bit of meat off of that, that bone, just basically just kind of cutting it and pulling it. Then once that's done, you basically just have the, the bone from the, the top of the shoulder all the way down to the foot that becomes basically just a bone with no meat on it. So you take that, and then that pile kind of goes back on top of our poncho, our, our plastic per se, and when we do that with the other shoulder. So now we have back strap, back strap, laying on top of it. we got a small pile of grind, which is the neck meat, the rear end meat, and any rib meat. Now we have another pile that's strictly all of the front shoulder meat. And usually I keep all of those kind of together between the grind, because so, my grind is going to be the front shoulders and all the scraps. So then with those little gunny sacks, I was saying those little backpacks that have a string on the top, or you can use a pillowcase. So for years and years, in fact, I still use pillowcase. I forgot to bring that up. You can actually go to you know any Goodwill and find these old pillowcases that people donate and those are fantastic you can just throw your meat in there it keeps them dry and then if it's bloody and you don't want to keep them you just throw them away and for a couple dollars more go back and buy some other ones so so then we would take any of those scraps that are on those front shoulders and put them in those gunny sacks then we would just take those and we can hang those to the closest tree now they're up in the air and especially if the bugs are starting you're starting to get flies now so then you can actually put all that meat in there and it keeps keeps everything nice and clean so now we have the two hindquarters from so from there we're going to take each one and as you start against the bone on the the foot side you can actually follow it and all of the different meat groups are going to kind of stop your different steaks and roasts and things like that and you can actually follow it and kind of pull them apart the next thing you know you'll have four or five different layers of different types of meats that as you pull off that rear hindquarter and once all of that's off then again take the trimmings take the rest a little bit of meat off that becomes the grind and you do the second one. So within, usually, this is where you want to go slow. I think a lot of people freak out because they think, hey, we got the animal down, the hunt's over, let's let's get it back. But that's where it's time to slow down and just enjoy it, you know, and just break that animal down. Because once it's broke down, you know, basically all that meat will fit into your backpack, and then you're not bringing out any bones. There's basically everything you're bringing out is going to be edible meat. And so instead of having a, a mule deer like I shot this probably was approaching 150 pounds, I probably brought out 65 pounds of boneless meat because it was just the best meat, or maybe it's closer to 75, you know, somewhere in, inside there. And I know a friend that I helped, 
a few years ago. He was used to dragging it out, being sore, hurt, and getting all bloody. Then he would take it to the butcher, and his deer cost was almost a third what it normally is because he wasn't taking the whole carcass, and that that butcher was charging for the hang weight. So now he's just bringing in just the meat, and that's all they're going to work on. So basically there's just a big pile of grind, and the other stuff just becomes into sliced steaks and roast and things like that. And I know some of you probably are freaking out that uh, Mike's describing deboning it out in the field. Um, I'm sure everybody knows Mike's aware. I'm, we're all aware that those muscles can contract and tense up when you do take it off the bone. However, as Mike said, that's all going to grind. So anything that we're talking about um, that you're taking it off the bone, the back straps, the tenderloins, those are going to be the stakes. You can leave, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mikey, you're leaving some of the rear quarters together, but you're mostly all the neck meat, all the rib, all the scrap, the front shoulders are mostly grind, and that's why you're deboning it because it's going to go through the grinder. You're not worried about having the big roast at the rear and the big stakes that the tenderloins and that the back straps create so it doesn't matter that you're taking it off that bone correct no the rear hind quarters i make stakes of them that's a lot of your sirloins and things like that so right so that so the hind quarters i'm breaking those into the as you take them apart you'll actually you see them there's like a liner that separates all the different types of stakes and roast we're pulling those off individually and that's just what's gonna are gonna you taking like, those off the bone as well absolutely there yeah when i when we come out there's no bone zero bone everything is coming off and the great news is there's a lot of YouTube videos out there, and you can actually break, watch all these individuals break down a deer as they're hanging, a lot of these butchers, and they'll show you all the different things. And that's basically what we're doing out in the field. So when you got to hike back a mile and a half up and down all these hills, you're basically not carrying nothing but all the right the weight. Then when you get back to the truck, you have an ice chest, and then you put it all in there, and everything gets ice cold, and all that meat is, you know, properly cared for, and it's 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 really good. So, so if you have that mule deer down. And obviously, without touching on being in shape and um, having the cardio preparedness in order to get out uh, whatever you've got down, you need to be able to carry that out. That's a talk for another day, but are you loading up everything you can to make as minimal trips as possible, right? Yep. So on a mule deer, you could carry that owl out by yourself with as minimal sacks as possible, all put back into your hunting pack. Absolutely, 100%. And you touched on earlier trying to keep the blood away from the backpack. We have certain ones that detach from an internal or, or an external frame. Some of them are just normal, regular backpacks that are, you know, a little bit heavier stitching. Do you put, I see some people put all those bags now into a large garbage bag to keep their bags clean, but... <clears throat> that's kind of a double-edged sword where the bag, your backpack itself is going to be clean because all those game bags or the the bags that you were describing, the free ones that, you know, the cinch strap can all fit in a backpack or, excuse me, into a big, large garbage bag, and that can fit in the backpack. But the whole point of keeping them clean and cooled off mm-hmm. is is – the point itself is to keep them, you know, cool. And if you put those in a big garbage bag, most of the time, especially here in Arizona, and I would, I would think in most states, that heat is still going to start radiating in that backpack. 
especially if it's in a large garbage bag. Would, would yeah. you agree? Yeah, we never use garbage bags. Never take them with us. I mean, it's there's no reason to because basically you're encapsulating all that heat. And then with these little these little bags, basically they'll just fit right in there, and it does has no effect. There's no blood. There's no guts. They're all inside the bag, and you just pull them straight out, and you're just like your backpack was never touched. So I would say in the last 10, 12 years, and you know, probably sixty to hundred animals, whatever it is that I've been part of by doing it this way, there's zero mess and no issues. And that's the whole point: is you don't have to come back all bloody and stinky and and get messy. Then you don't feel exhausted or hurt yourself because well, you're trying you'll to still pull be an animal. We'll still be stinky and, and exhausted from the hunt and carrying it all yeah, back. <laughs> exactly. No, exactly. No, for sure. For no sure. matter what. But it's just that the animal because you get all that animal on you. The I blood. Mean, um, and and touch on that. A lot of people think that you know it's taboo to to wear gloves the nitrile gloves or the latex gloves because you got you got to get you know dirty you got to get raw you got to get in touch with that animal you can yeah. still be it doesn't make you uh if you want to have at it if exactly. you have the means to be able to wash your hands and to keep yourself clean awesome but word to the wise we use gloves most everybody we uh that take hunting we use the nitrile or the latex gloves for the main reason that it protects you and it protects uh the the, the skin it, it protects the meat yep. um as we said those havilon and those outdoor edge knives are very sharp if you did happen to cut yourself and you're touching the meat there has been people like especially with a the javelina they're they're nasty dirty little animals and if I know of people that have had infections based on, you know, a cut from one of those sharp knives and then touching any of the skin, it could happen on a deer or an elk, but javelinas especially, or, you know, even a predator just because of what they, uh, how they live, what they eat, what they go, go around getting into. If you cut yourself and weren't wearing a glove, or if you didn't change your gloves out as you're processing, um, you know, you you could get infected on a cut. So that's part of cleanliness as well. Some people adamantly against it, were for it to each their own, but a part of that kill kit, a part of your uh, processing kit should be a couple sets of gloves in, in our, in, in our opinion. Yep. No, exactly. That's all I use is gloves. I mean, basically put the gloves on and take them off. And it's like, you're just like before you even started. That's, that's the great thing about the gutless method and preparing is, you're basically not exposed to all that stuff. It's clean. All the meat's going to be nice, you know, without, you know, blemish, you know, as a per se of dragging and getting dirt and grind and rocks and leaves and needles and everything else that goes in there. Then as you're walking out, you're putting everything into your backpack that you, it's very sturdy on you and it's fitted for you. And it's just basically just dead weight and that's where you take your time. But again, Instead of hiking a mile in and hiking back out, I'd rather load me myself down and just take my time and go slow. And a lot of times, I may if it's a heavy load, I'll just you know say, okay, I got to get to this rock or this bush, and I focus on that. And when I get there, I take a five minute, ten minute break, and then I'm ready to go, and I keep going because I'd rather do that than have to do back to back tricks on that side of it. So I agree. I'd much rather go slower once than a little bit quicker twice. Yep, exactly. And. Mike has, I've seen him tell plenty of people, it, it's a great tip. Um, your subconscious and your mental focus after a long hunt, uh, you've just got done processing that animal. You are exhausted depending on how much water and snacks and food you have. 
you just want to get back to whatever means you have, whether that's back to a base camp, back to a vehicle, back to your side-by-side, whatever it is, you're focused on that. And the little things, you know, start slipping up. Your mental acuity kind of gets depleted in those situations. And the breathing um, and the cardio are important. But like Mike said, it's that little thing of you find something to focus on whether you're in the desert and you see a giant saguaro, whether you're up north or in another state and whatever trees are there, you just it's something to take your mind off the pain. It's something to take your mind off of what's going on. You just find that. I'm going to hike to there, and then you take your break. And I know that doesn't go along with game processing per se, but it's a good tidbit to touch on that while you're dealing with all those different things in the backcountry by yourself or with or with buddies, it's a it's a good tidbit, it's a good tip to focus and just get to that next step, that next bush, that next whatever. Focus on that, get there, and you know, we do touch a little bit on on cardio and being in shape. That's gonna help with the processing because if you're going real slow or are having to make multiple trips all that is more time of that meat not on a freezer not in cool down um but while we're talking about that let's talk about ice and cooling it down a lot of people don't realize that you don't want that um the meat and the fur to get wet per se you want it cold on ice but you don't want it in water can you touch on that, Mikey? Yeah, and I would say most of the time I have frozen water bottles that basically all my meat goes in. I always have. So one thing I do is when we get you know large like uh, like juices and things like that, I freeze all those big water bottles and those become frozen. That becomes my ice, so there's actually no water. So so when we get back to the trucks, a lot of times I do day trips um, or even a weekend trip, but I have an ice chest that's full of these, and that meat basically gets encapsulated with all those frozen water bottles. I just, it's no good. To, I've never had good opportunity when most ice starts to melt and all of a sudden all your meat is basically sloshing around inside the water. You could put it in a trash bag, but I just have found those frozen water bottles really keep it ice cold, and it's it's a great way to go, and I've never had issues with that. And something else that, you know, kind of a philosophy that we came up with years ago that I was kind of believed in is we got to give back to the animals because we took from the animals. So when we harvest that animal, we do the gutless method, we're leaving that basically that animal completely there. And it's probably been 10 years ago, but I remember throwing trail cameras, hiking back in and taking a trail camera and putting it on there. And it is amazing the amount of critters that come in and feast off of that carcass that's laying there. So part of it is we, we harvest, we take we take the meat that we want to eat, but then we leave the rest of it there. And basically it's refeeding and replenishing nature you know, through that animals that we harvested. So it's kind of a, a neat double-edged sword where, we get the joy of hunting it. We get the joy of, of having the, the food on it. But then on the the other side of it is where we took that animal. Those animals that depend on eating off those animals, you know, they basically have a, a meal there that they can go. So it's, so it's kind of a, a cool thing where you think about all these butchers and think about when you drive around, they have these trailers set up and during elk season and different deer seasons. I mean, a lot of people bring that whole deer to the butcher. Then they're basically butchering it. Then all that waste goes right into a dumpster and gets hauled to the dump. We're here, we're actually leaving it, and it's kind of, it's it's recycling the life. So it's kind of a cool thing knowing that you're part of a, a bigger picture, not just, you know, doing a lot of waste. 
things like that. So, yeah, I mean, after the coyotes, after the ravens, after the bear, all the predators and and scavengers finish eating it. You, we don't think of it on a bigger scale, but it does go back um, and starts decomposing and starts putting the nutrients back in the ground, making the soil fertile and allowing uh, grasses and you know forbs and whatnot to grow again, and the cycle starts all over. So it, it, that is a great perspective. Yeah, and it's it's crazy. There's times that it's a week to two weeks, and you can't even tell if the animal is there. It's it's amazing. In two weeks' time, there's there's a few bones left because the other animals will grab the remaining bones or ribs and they, they run off with them and they grab them. And it's it's crazy to see, if you go back to the site, how it's just like there's nothing left, especially when you leave it in the gutless method because everything's just exposed and it's, it's like a, a free buffet for them, so per se. How many people do you think you've um, you've taught that come from, that are either new to hunting or come from uh, different backgrounds or cultures where it was normal to just gut it there and drag it out. Too many to count. A lot. A lot. And, and, I, th- I, and I guess a lot of it is just having confidence in doing it because most people are intimidated that they have to butcher their own and not knowing. And my mindset is, you know, grind. Everything that you can determine as a grind is either going to be hamburger or it's going to be a summer sausage or a jerky or a snack stick or whatever it is that specialty, that's just all your grind. Then I just take the best steaks that I like, which is all your back straps and your sor- sirloins, Take a few roasts for, you know, for crock potting, and that's it. You know, I mean, that's that's a great thing. Take the tenderloins. You know, those are our filet mignon. We wrap those up in bacon, and and it's done. So I systematically eat the stuff to how I like to prepare it, and I think that's where it's individualized. Some people like different things where I kind of focus on what I like. So, and that's the great thing about hunting and the harvest is you get to pick what those cuts are going to be. I, I have friends that all they, they want the whole animal to, to be summer sausage and snack sticks and that's okay but they live on it and it's fantastic so and maybe this will save you guys some money too um the tidbit on the backpack so if you like certain game bags they're probably a little bit bigger than the normal drawstring backpacks but if you're hunting javelina uh, small deer small whitetail small mule deers or something of those game sizes you can fit a lot of meat in those without having to spend a lot of money. And also by doing that gutless method and either taking it out on the bone or deboning it out there in the field, you save your ton of money. If you can't process it and don't have a, a grinder or a dehydrator or the means to be able to do that, no problem. But you're going to save your, save your wallet book a lot by taking the meat that you've already processed or the meat that you've already um, taken care of in the field. And when you bring that to a game processor for them to turn it into snack sticks, jerky, whatever summer sausage, or if you want them to cut it into steaks, you're going to save yourself a whole lot of money. Yep. And I know when we, when we first started doing this years ago, we, we calculated that, to take three deer, basically a whole carcass deer to the butcher, I could buy a, a the grinder that I needed to, and that's what we did. We so we figured instead of taking there, we'll buy the grinder, and after the third deer, it basically paid for the grinder. And then by doing so, now, so you think about a javelina, you only got roughly fifteen pounds of meat that comes off of a javelina. I mean, that's nothing for a grinder. Then you're going to go pay, you know, I think today's market's about a hundred bucks for a javelina. A coos deer, you're going to get about 40 to 45 pounds, depending on how big it is, of just boneless meat, which I think you're probably going to pay in the 125 to 150 range. So, I mean, so it's all calculated based on, you know, what do you, what do you want out of that animal? 
in the grinder, that's the great thing about the grinder is you get a, the meat's already clean, you get to grind it, and if you want to put some beef fat in there or some pork fat or whatever it is, you get to basically make one pound, two pound, or whatever you decide you want to have. So it's just, for, in my opinion, it's a win-win because from start to finish, you're basically doing all that. And I think we always got to remember that, you know, just take your time. It, you know, it doesn't have to be rushed. You know, if you can't get to it for a week, you know, leave it on the ice or, you know, and keep keep it cold it, and it'll stay. I mean, it's not like you have to have it done within two, three days. So, With as expensive as meat and any type of organic uh, animal that you can buy at, at a butcher or at a grocery store, the push of raising your own animals or buying organic meat, there's nothing more organic than harvesting wild game and there's nothing more pure than being able to butcher that yourself. You know exactly where it came from. You know exactly how it was prepared, how it was handled, and you know exactly the finished product that you're putting back into your body. There's just something pretty special about that, um, that when you get comfortable, you know, being able to butcher, being able to harvest that animal and taking it from the field to the table by yourself or with friends, whatever. But being able to do that systematically, um, there's just something something pretty cool about that. Yep. And then to think about it, think about all the stories. And this happened to me is, you know, hey, I dropped it at the butcher and this is not my meat. I mean, how many times have you heard that, hey, we had this issue. There's no way that was my meat. I, why has it got hair on it? Why has it got this? I, I took my time, and it was clean when I dropped it off, and I opened this package, and it's got hair or fur or whatever. So it eliminates all of that assumptions that you're actually getting your meat because sometimes, you know, they're busy, and they got got 100 carcasses. I mean, could they, you know, not give you everything that you gave them? Could it, could it be flip-flop based on timelines? And the other thing is, is since we started doing the, the gutless method and doing our own, we have never had gamey meat. And I think the big testament why a lot of people don't like game meat because it tastes gamey and it's hard, it's tough. It's because they didn't properly prepare it from the from the time they harvested, got it cool, and and did all those steps. Because we don't know once, even if you try to do all that right and you drop it off, I mean, how long is it sitting in their cooler and, and what's their process? You know, there's a lot of assumptions there. So, but again, it's it's just uh, the overall the reason why we hunt is the whole package. It's the the scouting time, the time investment, you know, the fellowship time of it to the hunting, to the harvest, to the preparing of the harvest, you know, to get it out quickly, to get that meat cooled, then to, uh, the preparation time to, to butcher it, you know, once you get it back. And, and again, every one of us has a different mindset of what we want out of the, out of the meat, and it's just you kind of cater to what that is. So now I'm more of just a steaks and hammer kind of guy, and that's kind of what I focus on. I love it. I love it. Um, before Mike closes us out, we hope you learned something from this. This is a, a quick podcast on game processing. And um, a lot of people have commented that, you know, they they are learning something. They've been lifelong hunters. We're, we're never too old to stop learning, right? So if you got one little tidbit out of this, it was well worth it. And if you have any tidbits that we may not have discussed or something that uh, you think could help us, or help others, reach out to us. Hit us up on, on our social media accounts or email us or or get a hold of us, um, and we'll share that. We we have this platform to, to one, bring people uh, closer to the ministry. That's our core purpose is uh, giving back and show, you know, shedding 
God's light on on everything and outdoors is is our means of being able to do that but we love being able to share and contribute and we love learning from other people and we love being able to teach and help mentor others as well so if you have any other tidbits or some little extra thing that you've learned or grandpa or dad or uncle have shared with you reach out to us because we love hearing different techniques and different uh little little tidbits to to make something easier or to make uh, it more effective. Uh, Mikey, did we leave anything out? The only thing I was going to say is, yeah, make sure you just watch some videos, you know, just go Google, you know, how to butcher a deer. You know, there's a lot of great videos, even though it may not be for out in the field, but they're actually going to break it down for you. And the cool thing is if you see how they kind of break it down, you're basically duplicating that while the animal's out in the field. And there's no right or wrong. I mean, if you mess up a little bit or overcut, it's okay. I think that's the other thing is we want to be perfectionists, but the reality is, is, just take your time, enjoy it, and you know. And over time, you're going to get better and better. And as you watch those YouTube videos, it'll actually break down the hindquarters, showing you all the different types of steaks and meats. And as you open it, you'll see exactly how they're all just kind of isolated. It becomes very easy and a lot of fun. So, um, but don't don't be scared. I think the biggest thing is sometimes we get this fear that hey, we're not a butcher. You know, we can't do the meat. But the reality is, you did or you already did all the hard work. The hard work was preparing, get to the harvest, get in the camp, and all of that stuff. Now it's just Enjoy it. Enjoy the ride. Saying I now I did all this preparation of the meat, and then when you give it to somebody else, you're like, hey, this is me from start to finish. You know what do you think? You know there's there's a reward to that. So, all right, Lord God, we just uh, we love you, Lord, and we're just uh, so grateful and thankful, Lord, that we have the opportunity, Lord, uh, just to sit and talk about something as common as hunting and the harvest and and how to prepare the meat, Lord. And I just thank you, Lord, that you give us this opportunity to have the vision to have a podcast and to share what we've learned you know none of us are experts none of us are professionals but we just do what we do because we love it and we love to give back in jesus name amen amen